Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, we are going to talk about Ruth Fulton Benedict, who was one of the first women to become really prominent in the field of anthropology. She had a big impact on that field, but I think in terms of, like, general name recognition outside of the world of anthropology today, she's probably overshadowed by some of her students, including Zora Neale Hurston and Margaret Mead. We will be talking a bit about Margaret Mead in this episode, too, because her life was deeply connected to Benedict, both personally and professionally, And while both of these women were really influential, they also faced a lot of criticism, both in their lifetimes and afterward. Some of this is because they were women working in a field that was at the time heavily dominated by men. And some of their ideas went against the trends and the standards of the day. But other criticisms were about, like, the actual content of their work. Some of those are more well-founded. Like, you could have a whole podcast series picking it apart point by point, there are definitely plenty of academic texts that are full of very detailed criticisms of both of them. That is not what this episode is for. Uh, What we are doing here is taking a broader look at Ruth Benedict's life and influence. Ruth Fulton was born on June 5th, 1887. Margaret Mead wrote a biography of her that named her birthplace as Shenango Valley in the northern part of New York, but other sources say that she was born in New York City. Ruth's maternal grandparents lived in Norwich, New York, in Shenango County, and that is where she lived for part of her childhood. So if she was really born in New York City, that may be the source of that discrepancy. 
Ruth's mother, Bertice Joanna Shattuck Fulton, was a schoolteacher who had graduated from Vassar, and her father, Frederick, was a surgeon. But Frederick died in March of 1889 at the age of only 31, a few months before Ruth turned two. Ruth's little sister, Marjorie, was only three months old. Frederick's cause of death was some kind of infection that he probably contracted on the job. He had apparently gone to Trinidad with the hope of recovering there and then died about 10 days after getting back home. This, of course, would have been hard for any family. And Ruth remembered her mother as grief-stricken and always worried about money, which is understandable considering her husband's death at such a young age and because they had financial trouble without his income. But this whole thing seems to have been particularly hard on Bertice. She was truly devastated by her husband's death. And as his anniversary approached every March, it was like she relived it. And then the whole family was traumatized all over again. So Ruth remembered her childhood as lonely and sad a lot of the time. She also contracted measles when she was a baby or a toddler. I'm a little unclear on the exact age, but afterwards she was hard of hearing. She and other people described her as deaf or partially deaf or in Mead's words, quote, just deaf enough to miss a great deal of what was being said before others recognized it. But nobody realized what was going on with her hearing until Ruth started school. That meant that in addition to growing up in a home that was dominated by grief and anxiety, Ruth was really isolated. She often couldn't understand what people were saying to her, especially if it was noisy or if there were multiple people talking at once. And until someone noticed her hearing loss, she also didn't understand why so much of what was happening around her was so confusing. So the first mass-produced hearing aids didn't hit the market until Benedict was in her 20s, and once they became available, she seems to have preferred not to use them. So in Ruth's childhood and teen years, she became withdrawn and very shy. She thought her sister, who was prettier and happier, was their mother's favorite. Ruth didn't really like to be touched, and except for an imaginary friend, she mostly played alone. But she loved to read and to write, and she came to enjoy her solitude. She later wrote of this, quote, "'Happiness was in a world I lived in all by myself and for precious moments.'" She also said that she learned that, quote, I could always, without fail, have myself for company, and that if I didn't talk to anybody about the things that mattered to me, no one could ever take them away. When she was young, Ruth also experienced some kind of recurring illness that she described as bilious attacks. About every six weeks, she would have a bout of intense vomiting. And this continued for years until she started menstruating. And at that point, she started experiencing period pain on about the same cycle. This ran alongside cycles of depression and anger and what she described as rages or tantrums. As an adult, she said these tantrums ended after her grandmother made her kneel on the floor by a lit candle and pray to God that she would never lose her temper again. Ruth and her sister Marjorie were cared for largely by their grandmother and an aunt while their mother tried to earn enough money to support them. Bertice took teaching jobs in a couple of different cities before being hired as a librarian in Buffalo, New York in 1899 when Ruth was about 12. 
After moving to Buffalo, Ruth and Marjorie got scholarships to St. Margaret's Episcopal Academy for Girls, which they attended from 1900 to 1905. Then the two sisters went on to Vassar together, and they graduated in 1909. Ruth's degree was in literature. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa and won awards for her poetry and essays. After graduation, the sisters spent a year in Europe with a couple of friends, and that was paid for by their friends' families. Soon after returning from Europe, Marjorie married Robert Freeman. Marjorie, Robert, and Bertice all moved to Pasadena, California. Ruth stayed behind in Buffalo for about a year before rejoining her mother and sister. She spent some time in California teaching at girls' schools before meeting biochemist Stanley Benedict on a trip back to New York. They got married on June 18, 1914. It seems like Ruth was happy for the first year or so of their marriage. In a journal entry that December, she wrote, quote, Five months ago, with all my consciousness of the power of loving that was the greatest part of me, with all the hunger and thrust of my love, I had no notion of its strength and depth and power of healing. No wonder the days seemed dreary and empty enough without this satisfying comradeship, this ardent delight, this transforming love. Now that I have it, it is what gives meaning to all of life. But Ruth's journals from their courtship and their early marriage also contain a number of references to her and Stanley hurting one another without really going into much detail. She also wanted to have a baby, but they weren't able to. Then in 1917, Stanley was injured in a lab accident. He inhaled toxic gas that he was researching as a potential wartime weapon, This worsened some issues that he was already having with high blood pressure and insomnia. He and Ruth wound up at odds over where and how to live. She preferred the city. She wanted to be in Greenwich Village, and that was too noisy for him. He wanted to live out in the suburbs and spend lots of time at his summer cabin in New Hampshire, and that was just too isolated for her. She finally wound up renting a room in Greenwich Village and staying there during the week and then going back to Stanley on the weekends, which was really unconventional. I feel like that would even be considered unconventional now. Yeah, I know a number of people who, for, like, work reasons, for the most part, have had residences in two different cities, but, like, this was unheard of, really, when she was living. A few years into the marriage, Ruth was feeling bored and unfulfilled. She had been raised in a devoutly Baptist family, but she had left the church. A lot of her classmates at Vassar had been active in various causes like women's suffrage, but none of those causes had really captured her attention. She tried to focus on writing poetry, publishing under the name Anne Singleton, and took on other writing projects. Eventually, she started on a book that she called Adventures in Womanhood, planning to include biographies of Mary Wollstonecraft, Margaret Fuller, and Olive Schreiner. She finished a draft on Mary Wollstonecraft, but when she couldn't find a publisher who was interested, she put the project aside. In 1919, still looking for something to keep her mind occupied, Ruth Benedict enrolled in a class at the New School for Social Research in New York City, which had been founded that same year. The new school was established by professors who had resigned from Columbia University after being censured for their opposition to the U.S. involvement in the war. It was open to students regardless of sex and was specifically focused on higher education for adults, especially on subjects that were related to social issues and political science. 
Benedict's first class at the new school was Sex in Ethnology, taught by anthropologist and folklorist Elsie Clues Parsons, who became one of Benedict's mentors. Another mentor was anthropologist and sociologist Alexander Goldenweiser, who had been born in Ukraine and immigrated to the U.S. in 1900. Both of them had worked and studied with Franz Boas, and they encouraged Benedict to pursue a graduate degree at Columbia University, where Boas was teaching. We will get into this some more after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we talk about Ruth Benedict's work with Franz Boas, we should talk a little bit about the development of anthropology as a field and the state of that field when she started studying it. So anthropology as a scientific and academic discipline was established primarily by Western European men. Interest in studying the cultures and peoples of the world really flourished alongside global exploration and colonization by European powers and 
A lot of the people carrying out that research did so from the perspective that Western European culture was the pinnacle of human achievement. So from the beginning, a lot of this research was rooted in inherently racist ideas. It imagined humanity in a hierarchy with white people at the top and all other races lower down. Cultures that had not had a lot of contact with Europeans were framed as primitive, with these allegedly primitive people supposedly in their natural state unaffected by things like industrialization. Of course, not every single individual person working in anthropology was espousing these kinds of ideas, but by the late 19th century, a lot of the writing coming out of the field was really Eurocentric and either implicitly or explicitly judged other peoples and cultures as less sophisticated, less developed, and generally inferior. One anthropologist who really pushed back on a lot of this was Franz Boas. He was born into a Jewish family in Germany in 1858 and immigrated to the United States in 1886. He started teaching at Columbia University 10 years later, and he was enormously influential as both an anthropologist and a teacher. He argued that race and culture were not biologically determined and that no one race or culture was superior to the others, either genetically or otherwise. He also argued that culture wasn't biologically determined at all. That instead, cultures arose from a collection of local, historical, and interpersonal influences. Some of Boas's ideas are summed up as cultural relativism. That's the idea that a culture's beliefs, values, and practices should be studied and understood from the point of view of the culture itself, not by making value judgments from outside that culture or comparing it to some kind of supposedly universal standard. In that case, universal usually really meant Western European. So that's not to suggest that Boas's work was perfect or that there's nothing to criticize about it. For example, as we mentioned in our episode on physical anthropologist W. Montague Cobb, Boas carried out excavations of indigenous burial sites that he later admitted felt basically like grave robbing. He also represented a turning point in the field, not an ending point. So, for example, the term primitive and the idea that so-called primitive cultures were in a more natural or authentic state, that still showed up in his work and the work of some of his students. And while a lot of the people that Boas trained tried to be anti-racist in their work, that did not necessarily extend to their treatment of other traits like gender or sexuality. Also, just in general, it's virtually impossible for a person to totally shed every single one of their preconceptions and all of their cultural baggage when studying another culture. So Boas and his students were still seeing and studying and interpreting the world through their own lenses, even if they really were making an effort not to. But he actively, intentionally, and prolifically tried to dismantle a lot of the racist ideas that were taken for granted within the field. And he trained a generation of other anthropologists to do the same. One of those anthropologists was Ruth Benedict. She started her graduate studies at Columbia in 1921 when she was 34. Boas became a mentor and a father figure. She and some of the other students called him Papa Franz. She admired and respected his work, but learning from him could also be challenging for her. In addition to his having a pronounced German accent, he was also 
known for mumbling when he talked. I saw him described as a notorious mumbler, which (laughs) made it hard for somebody with hearing loss to understand. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Uh, But Benedict really impressed him, so much so that he convinced Columbia to accept her classes from the new school as part of her Ph.D. work, allowing her to complete her degree in 1923 after only two years. Her dissertation was The Concept of the Guardian Spirit in North America, and it was drawn from existing research on the idea of the guardian spirit in indigenous cultures. She published it under the name Ruth Fulton Benedict, including her maiden name this way. That was also unconventional. Her dissertation caught the attention of one of Boas's former students, Edward Sapir. Sapir and Benedict bonded over anthropology and their shared love of poetry. They wrote poems to each other, and they wrote letters. From about 1923 to 1935, sometimes this was multiple letters every week. While studying under Franz Boas, Benedict also worked as his teaching assistant at Barnard College. Barnard had been founded in 1889 and was the first college in New York City to offer degrees to women. It was and is affiliated with Columbia University, which did not admit women as undergraduates until the fall of 1983. That's not a typo. <laughs> Barnard is where Benedict met Margaret Mead, who at the time was a senior in college. And at first, Mead was not impressed with Benedict at all. Ruth Benedict wore the same dress every day, and it was a dress that Mead did not think was very flattering. This was apparently because men wore the same suit to teach in every day, and Benedict thought that women should be able to follow the same standard. Benedict also had a really hard time speaking in front of the students. Even though she had taught at girls' schools years before, she really struggled with her shyness and her hearing loss. It took her years to really be comfortable with public speaking. But then Benedict led the students on one of their regular visits to the American Museum of Natural History, and Mead asked her for more information about one of the exhibits they were looking at. Benedict was clearly flustered, but said she would bring something to their next class, and she brought a copy of one of her own published papers, and Mead was so impressed that she gave Benedict another chance as an instructor. Mead eventually found Benedict to be knowledgeable, creative, and compassionate toward her students, and she started recommending the course to other students at Barnard. Benedict and Mead became friends and colleagues, with Benedict encouraging Mead to pursue an advanced degree in anthropology, including giving her $300 of her own money, which she described as a no-strings-attached fellowship. Mead started graduate study at Columbia in 1923, and that same year she got married to anthropologist Luther Cressman. And toward the end of 1924, Benedict and Mead started having an affair. This was obviously something they kept secret. Both of them were married to other people. As anthropologists, they both wrote about cultures that viewed gender and sexuality much different than in much of the United States. But in their own culture, this was something that could have ruined their reputations and their careers. There was also the fact that Benedict was more than a decade older than Mead and had been her teacher I'm actually a little fuzzy on whether Benedict was still Mead's teacher at this point. 
there was already a very well-established trope of predatory lesbians in media. So older women in positions of authority like teachers and headmistresses taking advantage of and corrupting their students in books and movies. This really damaging stereotype would make their affair seem particularly salacious if it was discovered. In 1924, Mead also started an affair with Edward Sapir. While Sapir and Ruth Benedict were close friends, it seems like their relationship was platonic. Their letters to one another don't suggest that it was romantic, and when they met, he was married and devoted to his wife Florence. But Florence died in 1924, and after that, Mead pursued him. Sapir was the one to tell Benedict about this relationship, and she was deeply hurt by it. It seems like Sapir, Benedict, and Luther Cressman all wanted more from Margaret Mead than she really wanted to give. She was an advocate of free love. This was one of a number of love triangles, or in this case, quadrangles, over the course of Mead's life. Although Benedict was really hurt over Mead's affair with Sapir, she didn't end their relationship over it. The two women wrote numerous letters back and forth after Mead left for fieldwork in Samoa in 1925, at a time when it was incredibly unusual for a woman to be sent to do fieldwork on her own. When Mead returned to the U.S., she wrote one of the books that she would become famous for, Coming of Age in Samoa, A Psychological Study of Primitive Youth for Western Civilization. That book came out in 1928. And although this book was about adolescence in Samoa, it included descriptions of sexuality among Samoan youth. And that's really what it became most known for. So this episode isn't about Mead, but it would be weird if we didn't mention that Mead's work and this book specifically have been the subjects of intense criticism. Mead's most vocal critic was New Zealand anthropologist Derek Freeman, who made totally different observations during his own fieldwork in Samoa. He published two different books arguing that Mead's work was totally incorrect. Critics of Freeman's work have pointed out that he was working in a different part of Samoa and that a lot had changed in the decades between when Mead did her research and when he did his, including there being an increasing influence from Christianity. This became known as the Mead-Freeman controversy. It went on for decades. My basic read on it is that there are valid criticisms of both of them. Right. Of course, Benedict had her own life and work going on during all of this, and we're going to talk about that after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1925, Ruth Fulton Benedict started editing the Journal of American Folklore. She worked as its editor until 1940. She also undertook field work among Puebloan peoples in the southwestern United States. Because of her hearing loss, she had to conduct most of this work through interpreters and choose those interpreters very carefully because they had to be willing to dictate everything they were interpreting to her while she wrote it all down word for word. This was a very time-consuming and laborious process, but it also led her to be really pretty careful in a lot of her field work. She tended to work in this, like, slow, methodical way. On Margaret Mead's voyage home from her field work in Samoa, she met New Zealand anthropologist Rayo Fortune. We're guessing on that pronunciation. And she was immediately attracted to him. Benedict felt like she had to compete with Fortune in a way that she had not with Mead's other partners, and that ultimately led to her ending their romantic relationship. Benedict and Mead continued to be colleagues and close friends for the rest of Benedict's life, though, including Benedict eventually being named guardian to Mead's daughter. In 1928, Benedict tried to publish a book of poetry, but again was rejected by publishers. She did keep writing poetry, but at this point, she mostly stopped trying to do it professionally. A couple of years after that, she and Stanley separated. Apart from their other struggles, he really had not supported her going to graduate school or establishing her own career as an anthropologist. It was only after their separation that Benedict was paid for her teaching work at Columbia. Before that point, it was assumed that she didn't need to be paid because she was being financially supported by her husband. In 1934, Benedict published Patterns of Culture, which is considered to be her most important work. This book compared three indigenous cultures, the Zuni of southwestern North America, based on her own fieldwork, the Dobu of Papua New Guinea, based on fieldwork done by Margaret Mead and Rio Fortune, and the Kwakwakawakta, also known as the Kwakiutl of the Pacific Northwest, based on fieldwork by Franz Boas. 
This book outlined her ideas about the relationship between culture and personality, including that culture was personality writ large. She described how the way a person lived and thought was extensively shaped by the culture they were living in. Each culture also had its own definitions for what was normal and what was deviant, and so that could only be examined for a particular person within the context of their own culture. Some of the specifics of this don't hold up as well today. Like, she labeled the cultures she was writing about using terms like Apollonian, Dionysian, and paranoid, but this book became a bestseller. It was translated into 14 different languages. It helped popularize the idea of cultural relativism among lay people, and it introduced people to the field of anthropology more generally. As was the case with her mentor, Franz Boas, she was really trying to see past the biases and Eurocentrism of earlier work and to get away from the assumption that traits that were common in European cultures were actually universal. In 1937, Benedict was promoted to associate professor at Columbia, making her the first woman on the Columbia faculty to receive tenure. But her work at the university soon became challenging. The year she got tenure, Franz Boas retired. A number of faculty and students thought she was the best candidate to take his place. In a lot of ways, she had been acting as chair of the anthropology department under his direction. But instead, Ralph Linton was named as his successor. While Linton had done his graduate work at Columbia, he had never become close to Boas like so many other students had. He and Benedict really did not get along, and in a letter to Meade, she called him a swine. By this point, Ruth Benedict was a widow. Stanley Benedict had died in December of 1936. She'd also started a relationship with Natalie Raymond. At one point, Benedict wrote in her journal, quote, Loving Nat and taking such delight in her, I have the happiest condition for living that I've ever known. Although Benedict and Meade had not been romantically involved in quite some time, and Benedict had seen other people in the intervening years, they were still really close, and Meade seems to have been pretty upset about Benedict loving somebody else quite so much. Benedict and Raymond broke up sometime in 1938, and in 1939, Benedict met psychologist Ruth Valentine. By 1940, they were living together, and their relationship continued for the rest of Benedict's life. Benedict wrote a letter to Meade in which she said, quote, We've been comfortable together. I know she thinks God made me out of rare and special clay, but she doesn't bother me about it. I love that. It's so cute. <laughs> During these same years, Benedict started intentionally focusing her published work on combating racism. This really started after the November pogrom, also known as Kristallnacht, in November of 1938. Afterward, Benedict really felt that she had a duty to do more to educate people about racism. In 1939, she took a sabbatical and wrote a book called Race, Science, and Politics, which was both anti-racist and anti-fascist. And then in 1940, she also joined the Committee on National Morale. Benedict and Jean Weltfish adapted race, science, and politics into a shorter pamphlet called The Races of Mankind, paid for by the Public Affairs Committee. The pamphlet described all of humanity, regardless of race, as related. Quote, The Bible story of Adam and Eve, father and mother of the whole human race, told centuries ago the same truth that science has shown today. 
that all the people of the Earth are a single family and have a common origin. Science describes the intricate makeup of the human body, all its different organs cooperating and keeping us alive. It's curious anatomy that couldn't possibly have just happened to be the same in all men if they did not have a common origin. This pamphlet went on to say that human beings are, quote, what the Bible says they are, brothers, and their bodies is the record of their brotherhood. Although 55,000 copies of this pamphlet were printed for members of the U.S. Armed Forces, there were members of Congress who called it communistic, and it wasn't ultimately distributed. There's also a film version of this pamphlet that was commissioned by the United Auto Workers CIO. This pamphlet is a pretty interesting read today because it is explicitly arguing against racism while also using language that is considered insensitive or even offensive by today's standards. Also, as you can tell from the passages we just read, it's written with a specific audience in mind. And some parts of it really don't hold up. Like, quote, the Russians have welcomed cultural differences and they have refused to treat them as inferiorities. No part of the Russian program has had greater success than their racial program. As we talked about in our episode on Paul Robeson and the Peekskill riots, there were definitely Black Americans who traveled or immigrated to the Soviet Union and found it to be free from the kind of racial discrimination they experienced at home. But as we talked about in our episode on the Holodomor, Russia and the Soviet Union had a long history of oppressing people of non-Russian ethnic identities, including Ukrainians. In 1943, Benedict started working for the Office of War Information, applying her study of anthropology to U.S. interactions with people who were living in occupied areas. And then this led to a focus on understanding Japan, both understanding how to approach Japan as a wartime enemy and understanding how to successfully occupy Japan once, presumably, the Allies won the war. Her research in this area became Report Number 25, submitted to the Office of War Information, and that was later adapted into the book The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which was published in 1946. Ruth Benedict did not speak Japanese and had never been to Japan. Since the U.S. was at war with Japan, going there for fieldwork was out of the question. So this research was what she described as, quote, culture at a distance. She drew from her early education studying literature as she examined and analyzed Japanese media and historical documents. She interviewed people who had immigrated from Japan and Japanese prisoners of war. She basically immersed herself in Japanese culture as much as she could without leaving the United States. Like the Races of Mankind pamphlet, Report Number 25 was written for a specific audience, this time the U.S. government and military. And it was for a specific purpose, which was to help political and military leaders understand their wartime enemies. They could make strategic decisions that would ideally help win the war. And then after the war was over, make decisions that would help make the occupation go as smoothly as possible, like without a lot of uprisings or insurgency. Although Benedict tried to approach Japan in a way that was sympathetic and compassionate, her work suggested that culture was learned. That also meant that it could be changed. She thought changing it was necessary and agreed that Japan needed to be democratized. She thought an occupation by Allied forces after the war would be necessary, but that the occupation should be compassionate and fair. 
She was also one of the people who strongly advocated for the Japanese emperor to remain as a figurehead after the Japanese surrender to help ensure stability during the occupation, although this also meant that he never faced any kind of prosecution or accountability for war crimes committed by Japan during the war. In The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, Benedict framed Japanese culture as a collection of dualities, The chrysanthemum represented beauty and order, and the sword stood for death and discipline. One point that became a big takeaway was that, in her view, Japanese culture was focused more on shame, while American culture focused more on guilt. This sort of shame culture, guilt culture dichotomy is really a pretty small part of the book, but it really took off like it's one of the things that has really stuck around. The Chrysanthemum and the Sword is really not an accurate look at Japanese culture today, and realistically, it was also pretty limited in what it said about Japanese culture in the 1940s. There are also some glaring gaps, like she doesn't discuss the impact of the U.S. atomic bombing of the cities of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, something that she argued wasn't yet fully felt in Japan at the time she wrote it. She also doesn't acknowledge that Japanese immigrants to the United States and their American-born children, who were U.S. citizens, were held in concentration camps during the war. That's something we covered in more detail in a two-parter in 2017. So today this book is seen more as an example of how the United States viewed Japan and itself after the end of World War II. This book was also widely discussed in Japan after it was published. There were meetings and symposia and ongoing discussions within Japanese academia and among other Japanese commentators. A lot argued that it was at best superficial. Some suggested that Benedict had cherry-picked details to kind of line up with her pre-existing ideas or to make her work more acceptable to American authorities. At the same time, though, this book became a bestseller in Japan, selling at least 2 million copies there by the start of the 21st century. It became part of a genre called Nihonjinron, or works about Japan and Japanese identity. And that's a genre that existed before World War II, but became incredibly popular in Japan afterward. And as a final note on the chrysanthemum and the sword, In it, Benedict wrote, quote, The tough-minded are content that differences should exist. They respect differences. Their goal is a world made safe for differences, where the United States may be American to the hilt without threatening the peace of the world, and France may be France, and Japan may be Japan on the same conditions. This statement is very frequently paraphrased as the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences and attributed to Ruth Benedict, although she never really said this shorter version. In 1946, Ruth Benedict received the Annual Achievement Award of the American Association of University Women. In 1947, she was elected president of the American Anthropological Association and that same year became a fellow in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 1948, she became the first woman to become a full professor at Columbia University. Also in 1948, Benedict launched the Columbia University Research and Contemporary Cultures Program that was funded by the U.S. Office of Naval Research. She planned to collaborate with Margaret Mead and others to study contemporary cultures at a distance. This is also sometimes described as a study of national character. This was a huge four-year project, bringing in 120 scholars of 16 nationalities, representing 14 academic disciplines. But Benedict died before it really got underway. 
She had a heart attack in September of 1947, shortly after returning from a trip to Europe to speak at a seminar in Czechoslovakia. Doctors told her she had to rest and keep her mind off of work for the sake of her heart. Margaret Mead was with her and wrote of this period, quote, in the five days she lived, she never referred to work again, but put all her effort into staying quietly alive until Ruth Valentine got back from California. Ruth Valentine was there by the end. Ruth Benedict died on September 17, 1948, at the age of 69. Ruth Valentine was the executor of her estate, and Margaret Mead was her literary executor. Mead lived until 1978, and in 1959, she published An Anthropologist at Work, Writings of Ruth Benedict. This book included her own thoughts on Benedict's life and work, in addition to selections from Benedict's writing. One thing that's included is Benedict's piece on Mary Wollstonecraft that she had written back in the 19-teens. On October 20th, 1995, Ruth Benedict was honored with a postage stamp. Today, the Association for Queer Anthropology, which is a section of the American Anthropological Association, awards an annual Ruth Benedict Award, quote, to acknowledge excellence in a scholarly book written from an anthropological perspective about a lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender topic. And that is Ruth Benedict. Do you have some listener mail as well? I have a listener Facebook comment from Kelly. Uh, and it is about our recent episode on Hasakura Tsunanaga. And Kelly wrote, just listen to this. I researched it recently due to another podcast. Throughout the episode, you pronounced the Spanish missionary's name Soleto. It is, in fact, Sotelo. Your pronunciation made me go back and check my sources, thinking I had transposed the letters, but this time, it wasn't me. No, Kelly, it was not you. Thank you. It was me. It was me. Here, So it's embarrassing to make silly mistakes in front of everyone, and then you're on a podcast, and they just stay out there for the remainder of time. Forever. So I am sorry for making this mistake. But what's funny to me about this one is that I actually finished writing that episode uh, almost a week before we recorded it, which is unusual. So every morning I would get up to and get to my desk and I would read back over that outline and like make little minor copy tweaks and stuff like that. And I did that like every day for like three or four days in a row before we actually recorded it. And somehow overlooked the fact that I consistently spelled this guy's name wrong the entire time. And also, at some point in the middle of the episode, flipped two, uh, two syllables in how I had typed out uh, Hasakura Tsunanaga's name. That one we caught when we were recording, though. Uh, I don't know how I managed to consistently make the same mistake throughout the whole entire episode, uh, but I am sorry for having done that uh, and not caught it in my many, many rereads of that episode. Thank you, Kelly, for spotting it and letting us know. (laughs) I feel like that's one of those things that starts where, I don't know about you, you may not have this problem, but I do know other people who have worked as copy editors sometimes do. It's like you have to fight it a lot because your brain auto-corrects stuff. Yeah, And then you never realize you've done it, and then it's too late, and you have relearned it the wrong way. Yep. This is absolutely true. Um, And there also are just a number of 
regular English words that you or I or both of us have suddenly realized we've been saying wrong our entire lives, like in the middle of recording an episode. Uh, What? Never. Yeah, probably because (laughs) one or the other of us learned that word by reading and made a mental pronunciation for it 35 or more years ago. (laughs) That has just been with us that whole time. So anyway, I'm sorry for somehow flipping those letters around. Thank you again for letting me know. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. We're all over social media at Missing History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.